Welcome back, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a faith indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service here at the Alumni Association. And I'm pleased this week to be talking with two guests, Deacon Mel Tardy and his wife, Annie, who are residents here in the area. And Deacon Mel is an 86 grad, undergrad, and 90 MBA. And he and his wife, Annie, are joining us for a conversation today. So thank you both for being here. Thank, thank you, Dan, you. for having us here. So I'd like to begin with some of your background and stories. So Deacon Mel, could you give us a sense of where you're from and what your upbringing was? Well, I'm originally from the wonderful city of New Orleans, Louisiana, and my family moved to Wisconsin just before I started uh, my undergraduate years at Notre Dame. So I lived in a place called Brown Deer, Wisconsin, which is just outside of Milwaukee. And I uh, came to Notre Dame. I I didn't want to come to Notre Dame because I didn't know anything about it, but my mother said that if you go to Notre Dame, you might meet this wonderful priest named Father Hesburgh, (laughs) who was involved in the Civil Rights Movement. And I didn't know anything about Father Hesburgh, but I wanted to keep my mom happy, so I went ahead and applied and and got in, and and there you go. So I came to Notre Dame and finished with a a Bachelor of of Arts degree in studio art, which is part of my New Orleans heritage. I used to like to watch the people in the French Quarter drawing portraits, and so that's what I like doing is drawing people. And then I, um, uh, after a bit of teaching and art and music, uh, I came back to Notre Dame and got an MBA in 1990. And then instead of going out, I decided to stay put for a second, and I got a job in the undergraduate admissions office. And uh, while I did that, I met my, my wife, Annie, and we got married in 1998 and just celebrated 22 years of marriage uh, just this year. Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. And then um, uh, once we got engaged, I decided instead of doing all the travel with admissions, I would do something different. And so that's how I got into first year studies, which is now the Center for Undergraduate Advising and first year advising. But I've been here ever since, and so we've, we've enjoyed our time. And she's kind of a, a Notre Dame person now because of all the things she's uh, involved with me. That's right. Yeah, if you're if you're around here long enough, <laughs> become part of the family for sure. Yeah. Annie, how about you? I'm originally from Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, my family came up north. My dad was looking for a job after World War II. Hmm. He wanted a better life for us, and so South Bend back then was a very industrialist town. Sure. So he found a job working for White Farm Equipment, mm-hmm. and so the rest is history. That's great, Deacon Mel. As you were growing up, what was the practice? Uh, faith in your family, and how did faith continue to be important to you over your time as an undergraduate and beyond? Growing up initially in New Orleans, there's a very strong Catholic presence in New Orleans. Sure. We have parishes and, and instead of counties. Uh, we, you have, there are a lot of Catholic schools and, and Catholic parishes, and, and so I, I couldn't help but be influenced by that, the, the culture of New Orleans. And my, uh, my great-grandfather, he was a, a big influence on me because he was such a man of holiness and faith. He went to Mass every day. He made sure that everybody around him respected God. And we always knew when we would come in his presence that we would have to be a little bit more respectful uh, <laughs> than we were in some other settings. But my, my mother and my father also just made sure that we, we grew up knowing who God was and being involved in the church. And I used to see the example of my, you know, uh, whenever there was an activity, my dad would be the one who would move the chairs around and do things like that. And both my parents uh, were musicians, and so they, they sang often in the church choirs. Mm-hmm. And so we wound up doing something similar. I didn't sing in the choir. I played the trumpet for different things. But that's how I, I kind of, 
I think God was working it so that I would grow up very engaged in my Catholic faith. And I think once I got to Notre Dame, it, it was something that brought everything together because it was a f- I hadn't been in a lot of Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. It was sort of in and out of Catholic schools. But when I got to Notre Dame, I had more of an opportunity to engage the Catholic faith in a new way, taking theology classes and, and seeing other people in their faith. And so I think that was part of how I wound up growing in my, in my faith. Mm-hmm. And for you, Annie, where was the role of faith growing up for you and your family? Well, my parents worked very hard, and uh, my mom had epilepsy. Hmm. And so even though the two of them could not come to church, they made sure that they sent us to church. And so I was Baptist at the time, and so they'd get us up every Sunday morning, get us ready, and send us off to church. And so I've only been Catholic for maybe 20 22 years. Maybe a little longer. Two yeah. years before that, but about 26 years. So I am not a cradle Catholic, but I, I'm very happy to be Catholic. It's been a good transition for me. Yeah, thank you for that. Deacon Mel, you talked about the two of you meeting. Can you give us some of the background of that and how that blossomed into to your marriage? Well, we met through a mutual friend, and I think that as we came to know each other we you know once we met each other we actually started dating and probably dated regularly like until we got married we dated six years before we got married and one of the things I liked about Annie is when you, when you marry somebody you, you or at least when you're in a relationship with somebody you can tell something about them from their family sure oftentimes and then I could see that her family even though they were not Catholic they were a family of faith yeah and and I could see the values and similar values to my own family and so that immediately attracted me to her. For you, Annie, what, what jumped out to you or what helped Mel stand out to you? When I met Mel, first thing that stuck out for me was the fact that he was a religious man. He had a strong faith background. And I always prayed, you know, be careful what you pray for. I always prayed for a man that was in the church that feared God. Uh-huh. And it was, it was perfect for me. Yeah. That dynamic of Catholic and Baptist also African-American spirituality. How did that all come together for you in your own discernment and your relationship as this is how we have practiced our faith originally and now we're practicing our faith together? Can you talk about some of that metamorphosis? Well, I think one of the things that really gelled everything for us is that we were going to St. Augustine's Parish here in town. Sure. When, uh, when Annie and I started to, to see each other, then she started coming to St. Augustine's with me. And St. Augustine's is a historically African-American parish here in South Bend. It is a, um, a very mixed parish now, which is one of the things that we pride ourselves on is that we're a church that welcomes everybody. And, and that's you know, a reflection of what the Catholic Church is, is meant to be, a universal church. Everybody is welcome. Uh, but because of the, 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 the African-American heritage and, and culture at St. Augustine's with the gospel choir and some of the things that we were involved in eventually with youth ministry, et cetera, we, we wound up being in roles where we were bringing those things together, the culture, the, the, the faith. And I think that that was something that if we had not been at St. Augustine's, maybe it wouldn't have happened the way it did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but it was a good combination for us uh, and also for our kids uh, that they, when you're growing up African-American in New Orleans and you're Catholic, you see a lot of Catholics. Right. Growing up African-American Catholic in South Bend, 
you see a lot of Catholics, but you don't see a lot of African-American Catholics. Yeah. The fact that we had yeah. a parish that had this really made a difference. But we had to do an additional education with our, with our kids and with ourselves so that we would go visit Chicago, we would go to Atlanta, we would trip, make trips to New Orleans. Uh, we're to kind of, <laughs> we like to travel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, we like to just get in a car and go. And, and so whenever we went somewhere, we would try and, and, and do this. And I think that that was something that helped our kids to stay in the faith because they knew that even though they didn't, most of the African-Americans they saw in this area were not Catholic, mm-hmm. they knew that there were other Catholics elsewhere. Sure. Um, but that was something that kind of started in our parish, and then we, we took it in other places. Mm-hmm. And Annie, for you, the decision, the discernment, to join the Catholic Church, aided, it sounds like, by this community at, at St. Augustine's. Can you give us a sense of what that journey was like and what allowed you to make that decision? It was, it was an easy transition for me because St. Augustine's is such a small community, mm-hmm. but a loving and giving community, and so it was very easy for me to feel like I belonged there. You know, they say it takes a village to raise a child, so there my kids didn't feel like visitors. They felt like there's another mom, there's another dad that's helping me along in my journey of faith. And so it was easy for me to make that transition. Yeah, absolutely. And you both talked about your kids, so could you give us a sense of who they are and how that came about? Well, I have a daughter named Martel Nicole, and her journey was she, we started out in the public schools, and so I think that once we transferred into the Catholic school system, I've seen a bit of growth with her that I didn't see before that helped her along with her journey through the, through the faith. And along with my son Trevor as well, had a smoother transition of community transition, so that was helpful as well. And then my son Antonio, who stays very busy, he also, he has to, he's discerning uh, as far as the Catholic faith goes, but he... Um, but he's a, he's a man of faith. He's yes. a man of faith, thank yeah. you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, actually, our, our, our daughter had the opportunity of being in Catholic schools all the way through. She did um, Holy Cross here in town, and then she wound up going to St. Joseph High School, mm-hmm. and then she uh, graduated from St. Mary's College. Okay. And so, so she was the one who went through Catholic school all the way through. Our middle child, he went through, uh, Trevor, he went through Catholic High School, uh, St. Joe. And then um, our oldest son, he, he was in public school all the way through. Okay. And... Deacon Mel, you're a permanent deacon. Yeah. So, <laughs> how did that how did that all t- transpire? Can you give us a sense of of what that journey was? Sure. Well, I mentioned earlier that uh, we like to travel as a family and and take advantage of opportunities where we can grow in faith. Whenever we would go places, uh, like the, our kids would say, "Well, okay, so we're traveling, so we can sleep in in a hotel." And I said, "No." We're getting up and finding a Catholic church. Going to mass, we're going yeah. to Mass. And so uh, just to make sure they know that we're, we're Catholic wherever we're at. <laughs> and uh, when we went to Atlanta uh, for the Olympics, we went down to the Atlanta Olympics, and one of the things I did is look at, go visit Vincent Rougeau, who used to be on the faculty at Notre Dame, but he was a, a head of the Office of Black Catholics there. Mm-hmm. have an Office of Black Catholics in South Bend, so I said, this is something that we can do, plus see a friend. And we asked him if there was anything going on that would be good to see. And he said, well, you can go to Clark Atlanta University. They're having a gathering of African-American or black priests and, and, and nuns and sure. a prayer service or something. So we went to that. And it was really uh, nice to see all these um, priests and, and, and sisters, and, and they were all African-American, mm-hmm. and, and some bishops, too. 
And I don't know what the activity was, but afterwards there was a reception and I was talking to a gentleman and he was telling me all these things he did and the service and his involvement in the church. And I said, well, that sounds a lot like, like me. I said, well, I'd, I'd like to do some, some things like that. So I said, well, th- well, thank you, Father. And he said, oh, I'm not a priest. I'm a deacon. Mm. I said, what's a deacon? So he told me what a deacon was. And I said, I think that's something that I'm, I might want to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, as soon as we got back to South Bend, I asked our pastor, I said, well, what would it take for me to become a deacon mm-hmm. in the church? And he said, you would have to move to another diocese. And I said, why? And he said, because there, there's no deacon formation program here. Ah. And I said, well, can we just start one? Because I didn't know <laughs> any better. And he said, well, you'd have to uh, talk to the bishop about it, but they haven't had one in a number of years, so it's probably not going to happen. So I said, well, God, whatever this deacon thing is, you're going to have to create a program here in South Bend because we're not moving. Yeah. And then we'll talk. Well, five years later, with a different pastor in the church, he came up to me and he said, hey, Mel, there's a, the diocese has created a deacon formation program, and I put your name in as a possible <laughs> candidate. And I said, oh, okay, God, well, now we need to talk. So, yeah. so one of the long story short, going through five years of instruction, and the wives are included in that instruction. Right, right, so uh, yeah. my wife went through uh, the instruction as well. The first two years were, were required at that time, and then the others were optional. But all the, everyone bonded, and we had a great group from all over the diocese, different walks of life. And so um, five years later, in 2011, I was ordained a permanent deacon in the Catholic Church. And so it's interesting how God works that out, because if I had not gone to the Atlanta Olympics <laughs> and gone to the Office of Black Catholics and then gone to that reception, I would have never met that gentleman who, you know, introduced me to, you know, the, I mean, what the diaconate was. Yeah, yeah, definitely the, the Holy Spirit moving there. Annie, for you, it is, I think, for permanent deacons who are married, there's an intentional mutual discernment because there's, I'm sure, demands on Mel's time and your family's time related to his being a permanent deacon that is a sacrifice and, and, and affects your family's life. So what was your own discernment like about this idea that he would become a deacon? It was very easy for me because it was, I hate to, to be honest, it was the kind of the life we were living anyway, sure. one of holiness. And so it was just, it just, just another step toward completion of the lifestyle that we, we wanted and that we live. And so it was a commitment as far as in order for the deacons to become deacons, the wives have to give their Approval. Approval of yeah. that. Yeah, she, she really liked that part. Yeah, I like that even, a lot. Even to the very moment, the day of, if she would have said, Bishop Rhodes, uh, I've changed my mind, my husband can't be a deacon, yeah. then I can't be a okay, deacon. Okay, okay. So, so. yeah. <laughs> Extra chores around the house yeah. and everything you so, could do to make sure. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But, but it, it made us become closer. It was a spiritual journey for us. Mm-hmm. You know, And over time, we learned so much about our faith and about helping others and about being chosen as a couple to be in the diaconate program was a blessing for us. Yeah. And, and I think just, you know, getting a chance to, there were a lot of questions we could ask of, of our uh, faculty as we were going through the instruction. And then getting to know the other people, as I said, and, and we have a nice bond between us all that we, we're, we're close. When you say we're close, we stay in touch with each other. We actually have the ladies, we actually meet maybe once every few months and get together because it is a growing, it is a continuous growing process. You don't just become a deacon and a deacon's wife and you're done. Mm-hmm. It's everyday uh, changes are, are occurring. You know, there, there is demands on our life from our parish, 
from friends who know us as diaconate couples. And so we have to always stand ready and be able to, you know, to help them. That's what we're called to do. Be before I became a deacon, we were very involved in the church. We created a youth ministry at our parish because we saw that our kids were coming and they were bored. Yeah. And they wanted, I mean, they liked the liturgy and everything. They liked the music. Uh, but they, they, it's like, well, there's nothing for us. And yeah. we agreed. There's, there's you know, nothing for you. So we created youth ministry and we started doing a lot of activities with a lot of the young folks. And then also um, I was involved with the choir. I was the uh, choir director. And, and so we were engaged in that way and we were involved in an organization called the Tolton Society, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, at that time was in the memory of Father Tolton, the first recognizably African-American priest in America. Uh, we didn't necessarily know a lot about him. We knew of him. Yep. Uh, at that point, he wasn't his, his cause for canonization to sainthood wasn't, wasn't up yet. But we knew, we were inspired by his story to, to serve those in need, and that's what we were doing. But, so we were very involved, but when we went through the deacon formation as a couple, I, I really liked that the church did it that way because the church always said, look, you already have a commitment yeah. as a couple, and we want to respect the marriage, mm -hmm. the sacrament of marriage. And, and so this is, is something that is also important, but it cannot take away from the commitments you two already have. So involving the wives in classes was good. And really since then, we've, we've done almost everything together in our, in our life of ministry. Yeah. So we, we, we call ourselves a deacon couple. Yeah. Um, um, <laughs> I like but, that. but yeah, a lot of the things that we do now, one of the things that we weren't anticipating was that we've had people come to us in the parish or other people who know us who have said they wanted our assistance with marriage counseling. Hmm. We didn't, and we said, you know, we're not professional marriage counselors. Right, right. I said, yeah, <laughs> but you guys have a good relationship. Yeah. We can see this and yeah. we want to, to see if you can help us. And so we've actually counseled several couples and they're still together. And, and so it's, that was a, an outgrowth that of our you know, we look at the sacrament of marriage yeah. and the grace that you get from a sacrament and, and grace overflowing. And we always talk about that, how that grace enables us to help others in, in need, be it uh, through marriage counseling or with youth ministry or even our own, our own family members. Um, that, that grace is there. Yeah, and sometimes comes about in surprising ways, yes. something that you didn't even expect. Did you ever think about being a priest when you were younger? And how can you explain for people who may not understand how, what difference differentiates a permanent deacon and his role as opposed to what a priest does? Well, I have a little funny something to say. During the time I was going through RCIA, the priest at the time that was working with me, it was a wonderful going through it, but every time he had a pause, he would turn to Mel and said, Mel, have you ever thought about being a priest? And, and we were dating. And at you the were time. married yet? Oh, no, we weren't married, married yet. And, and and she would turn her eyes at him. <laughs> I, uh, I did feel the spirituality in Mel when I was dating him, so I I, I understood what what uh, the priest saw in him at sure. the time. I saw I saw the calling myself, so it was hard for me to make a decision even to marry Mel. I had to step back and say, you know, is this is this what God wants for me? Is yeah. this what God wants for Mel? Okay. And so. I, I had thought about it at times in my life. I, you know, I, I, I've always felt a calling from yep. God yep. in some way. I just didn't know what I was, you know, how, what, how it would manifest itself. 
And so there are times where I thought I'm, I might want to be a priest or uh, there were religious brothers in some of the Catholic schools I went to. Sure. Uh, I thought maybe I might want to be a brother, whatever that is at the time. Yeah. <laughs> and it just so happened that it was a diaconate you know, later in life. But once I came to know of it, then I felt this is a good fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this, you know, this, this, this works well for me. But I, I always, I think my entire life, I always felt there was a calling of some kind. That's helpful to hear. I visited New Orleans a couple of times, and it is a very unique place and rich with a lot of history. I'm interested in particular of your love of music and and the role that music plays in the culture there. How did that help you grow in your faith and integrate your faith with with your love of music? Well, I... I was surrounded by music in New Orleans, not only because it's part of the culture there. So, you know, the, the jazz is something that I grew up with. Sure. Jazz, Dixieland, blues, things like that were, were all part of growing up in New Orleans. But on the other side of things, uh, both of my parents were professional opera singers. Oh, wow. So when they were in the church choir, or even when they weren't, <laughs> people would notice. People would turn around in the pews like, where is that coming from? <laughs> they you were ever just, thought about Canton? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, wherever we go, uh, wherever we, you know, whatever church we're in, if my parents started singing, all of a sudden they were, we were in the choir. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the kids were in the choir, too, because the parents were in the choir. And, uh, and we were all musicians. I was a trumpet player. My, my brother played clarinet and saxophone, and he's actually a professional musician now, uh, mm. Greg Tardy. And then my, um, my, my sister, Pam, she played a flute. So uh, our home was like a little conservatory of music at yeah. times. We were all practicing at the same time. But, you know, just, I think that that musical influence was helpful because... Again, it always led to me being in the church mm-hmm. and people asking me to play for weddings and people asking me to play for funerals and people asking me to do this or being in the church, in, in the church choir in some way. And when I became a deacon, then, you know, one of the, one of the things about being a deacon is liturgy. Mm-hmm. And so I was, I was very familiar and comfortable with music from being a choir director sure. and, and knowing music. The other things as well, the, it, it's, it's uh, word, liturgy, and charity are, are the three uh, charisms of being a deacon. Mm-hmm. And uh, word as uh, being maybe now I do preaching, I do homilies, and then uh, liturgy, serving at mass, and, and other capacities in liturgy. And then charity, going out and, and serving those in need. Mm-hmm. Well, my wife and I actually do St. Vincent de Paul. She's actually the, the, the president of our St. Vincent de Paul cha- uh, conference at St. Augustine's. But part of that ministry is growing in holiness by serving the poor, by mm-hmm. serving those in need, mm-hmm. and seeing Christ in those that you're serving. And I think a lot of people, they see St. Vincent de Paul and they think about, hey, you know, this, they have the stores or they have the, they do the food deliveries, but not realizing that there's a very strong spiritual component to it. And, but the idea is, the goal of St. Vincent de Paul is to grow in holiness by serving the poor. Mm-hmm. And it is in seeing Christ and serving Christ, going to Matthew 25, whatever you've done to the least of my brothers and sisters, you've done for me. Sure. In serving those in need, we grow in holiness. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the thing that, you know, in all the ministries we do, whether it's youth ministry or St. Vincent de Paul or some of the activities we do with the Tolton Society, mm-hmm. it seems to be the, the common thread that in helping others, we're, we're growing in our own faith in some way. Annie, could you speak to that a bit? What has been important to you in your own ministry towards others, in your own service, things that have kept you going and in which you find meaning? Well, even with, as Mel said, we're working with St. Vincent de Paul. One of the 
true things, the fact is that when you enter a home to help others, the blessing is actually yours. Mm. Part of what they ask us to do is to pray with them. But every time you leave a home, you leave with more than what you came with. You leave the food there with them, but you pray with them. But when you leave out of there, you yourself are feeling a, a blessing of thanksgiving. You receive that growth. Thank you. That's beautiful. Mel, you mentioned your own kids and in, in a South Bend context, meeting other Catholics, but not necessarily African-Americans, and then, and then traveling to some of these other cities. I think there is an aspect of black Catholicism that is a bit hidden, or people may not realize that it's there. What do you think we can do as a church to highlight some of the gifts of an African-American spirituality in a Catholic context that would help not only expose it to a wider audience, but for those who are African-Americans to know that they have a home in the Catholic Church? Mm-hmm. I think one of the first things is to... People need to understand that there are black Catholics, first yeah, of all. Right. <laughs> because uh, there are a lot of people... If you, if you don't have a New Orleans, <laughs> if you're not in New Orleans or you're not in... Chicago or a place where Washington D.C. where there are a lot of African American Catholics, yeah. you just don't even know that they they exist, mm-hmm. and and we do, and there are African American priests, there are African American bishops, African American deacons, sisters, nuns, brothers, and I think that one of the things is letting people know that there's more than one culture when you're talking about Catholicism. Yeah. Whatever culture you have, you bring it to the table. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so sometimes people feel like, well, when I go to a Catholic uh, liturgy of some kind of mass, and I only see images of one type of person, mm-hmm. Eurocentric images, I only hear music that is Eurocentric, I only hear language and examples in the homilies that, that deal with this particular perspective, mm-hmm. well, I feel like maybe this is not for me. Okay. And I think that one of the things that we can do to be a more universal church is to change some of those images to be uh, more diverse, mm-hmm. change some of the music. You can have a particular type of music throughout the year, but certain times of the year or in certain contexts, maybe you change it up. Mm-hmm. And we see this happening where there are um, folks coming in who are Hispanic, or Latino, and, and when, you, when you have a, a large enough population, the music shifts, yeah. or the images <laughs> shift, and the prayers shift. But I would say that don't wait for that to happen, because one of the things I do with youth ministry is if I'm talking to kids about holy um, men and women, I'm talking to them about Juan Diego, I'm talking to them about some of the um, holy men and women in Africa, mm-hmm. not just African-American. I'm talking about African-Americans. I'm talking about St. Patrick. I'm talking about St. Francis. I'm yeah. talking about St. Catherine Drexel. I'm talking about a mix of people because sure. I want them to see it's universal. Yeah. So if I only say, look, I'll show them only the African-American ones, yeah. then they don't get a sense that it's universal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But when I show them everybody or you know, like a mix, then they get that sense. So it's music. It's, it's all the elements of culture. It's, it's uh, the examples we use in the homilies. In my, in my parish, we have a diverse parish, so mm-hmm. I, use, I use different examples because sure. we have different people, and I want them to all relate to what I'm, the, the gospel, the good news. So this is one of the ways that we can do it. Mm-hmm. No, that's very helpful. I've had the occasion to travel to Rome, and if you're ever out at St. Peter's Plaza there, and it's a big gathering of people for a mass, or, I mean, you really get the sense of the universal church or I think about World Youth Day or, or any of the images that, you know, there really are people from all over the world who find 
the story of Christ compelling, and they bring their language and their culture to that, and they, they find a way to praise God through the Catholic Church within their culture. So I think that's important for everyone, no matter where they come from, to have an appreciation for. Yeah. If I can add, another thing that we can do is to let folks know that African Americans are not Johnny-come-latelys to uh, the Catholic Church. Yeah. That the, the African presence is all throughout the Bible. Yeah. And, and during the time of Jesus, you know, Simon of Cyrene, Cyrene was black people mm-hmm. carrying the cross of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And there are other examples of folks uh, during that time who um, were of African ancestry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, um, and of course, you know, you have Egypt and Ethiopia and uh, Moses' wife. Moses, his wife was an Ethiopian. So there's a presence there yeah. that people don't know. But then the earliest, one of the earliest converts to Christianity was the, the Ethiopian um, eunuch, eunuch. Right, yeah. and that church is still in existence today, and that was before a lot of the churches in Europe. And so just to know that, that there, there's a presence there throughout history, it's mm-hmm. not something new mm-hmm. uh, that anyone is bringing to us or that mm-hmm. we're discovering. And the, when we can connect people with that history, then they understand that, okay, I can see that, that God has I'm part of the salvation history as well. Yeah. It's not that all of a sudden this is something new to me. That's, that's very helpful to hear. Any, in your travels as a family, have you had moving experiences of uh, encountering other cultures or just encountering a familiarity in other places as you've been a part of the Catholic Church? Well, one of the things that attracted me to the Catholic Church is the fact that they say, come as you are. Jesus says, come as you are. And I'm able to come into the Catholic Church and be fully myself, you know, enjoy my music, my, my style of music. I think that is what's attracted me in travels, is being able to go into any church and, and enjoy myself and know, know the formality of the church because it is a universal church. Yeah, it is nice when you, when you travel. You, uh, you know that... You know what the readings are going to be. Mm-hmm. You know what the, what the, the structure of, of the liturgy is going to be. You know that I know a lot of people who converted to the Catholic Church because they said, well, when I was at another church, I never knew what to expect from week to week. Yeah. But in the Catholic Church, there's a you know the structure there, mm-hmm. and and uh, and it's order is an order there, mm-hmm. and and they like that. Yeah. They like that order. Yeah. And, even uh, if it's in another language. Even if yeah. it's even if it's <laughs> yes. even if it's culturally a little bit different. Yeah. Um, sometimes uh, or different language. Uh, even if you go somewhere like if you we went to Europe once and the mass we went to a mass because we always go to mass. Yeah. And uh, we couldn't follow the language, but we knew the different parts. Like this is when you kneel, and this yeah, when you, this right. is what's going on. <laughs> but it's you know, it's it's amazing that you have that. You have that wherever you go. So I think that's one of the strengths of the Catholic Church. Yeah, a real gift, a real gift for sure. I'd actually like to turn to the topic of finding meaning in suffering. Um, You mentioned New Orleans, and I think in a relatively recent context, we think of Hurricane Katrina and sometimes the suffering um, that has happened there, but also the suffering of African Americans over the course of our country's history and the continued struggle that goes on there. So in your sense of the suffering that sometimes we all go through, where does the role of God and, and faith come into uh, making sense of that suffering and, and enduring it in, in certain contexts? One of the things that has been part of my journey as a Catholic, uh, as an African-American Catholic, has been the, the suffering that I and others have had to endure because of racism uh-huh. in, in this country. and. 
It's something that we have to acknowledge. There are times when the church has acknowledged it in its statements. There are times when the, the church, not the church, the whole body of the church, but individuals uh, in leadership roles and, and, and in the pews, you know, have supported things like slavery or, or racist thinking, uh, racist thought. And, and those, those are moments of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Hurricane Katrina and Hurricane Rita, which followed on its heels, and that, that devastated uh, a, a large portion of New Orleans. But the thing that, that was striking in the suffering was the images that we saw in the Superdome were primarily black folk. Yes. And, and people said, well, why was that? Well, because these were the folks who didn't have the economic resources to leave. Mm-hmm. People said, why didn't they leave? What was wrong with them? Why, why didn't they just go? They didn't, they didn't have cars. Yeah. They didn't have, you know, they couldn't fly out. Uh, they, if they were to go, where are we to go? We don't have relatives elsewhere that we could stay with. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do these things? Yeah. And, and so I think that it, it's, and, and, and because a lot of those folks were of African heritage or African American, that let us know some of the socioeconomic disparities in our society. Right. And when the church addresses those things, people feel like they're welcome that the church is relevant. When the church fails to address those things, people feel like this is not the church for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been the, the universal constant in our experience in America is that there are times when people would uh, address the suffering in our community and people would, would, would flock to the church. And there are times when maybe they wouldn't. But I, I think that for me, when I look at the suffering, the way that I was raised, I'll, I'll give a nod to my, my parents and in particular my mother, when we would encounter racism when I was a child, she would always pull me aside and say, look, you know that we have other friends who are white and they're not like this. Mm. So don't paint everybody with the same brush. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was raised. And wow. so when, whenever somebody, because I experienced some really bad racism over the years, mm-hmm. even at Notre Dame, mm-hmm. okay, yeah. um, I, I witnessed things. But I never said, okay, this is all white folks. Mm-hmm. This is some white folks. Mm-hmm. And my mom would say, pray for them. Mm-hmm. So I would pray for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, we, and the example that I always had was the cross. Jesus was suffering innocently so. Mm-hmm. He didn't deserve it, but yet he turned the other cheek. He treated everybody with love and compassion. From the cross itself, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, the, that's the way that I've approached the suffering in my own life. This is not something that came from God, mm-hmm. but God can help me get through it. Mm-hmm. God can make a way out of no way. And, and that is how I think when I, when I look at these things, I always try and look for the the, the better part of humanity in everyone, mm-hmm. the best that I can. Sometimes mm-hmm. I fall short, but I never give up on anybody. I always feel that there is an, uh, that, that God loves this person and created this person, and even if they're not there yet, maybe in, in me not being, uh, being a light and not a mirror, not reflecting back what they're doing to me, but being the light of Christ to them, maybe that will be a little step forward for them to have a conversion experience. Mm-hmm. If I do what they're doing and I uh, have anger and, I, and, I'm, and hate and all of those things, I'm not helping them and I'm not helping myself. Mm-hmm. But that's, that's kind of the way that I've tried to approach the suffering in the world is it's not, it's not of God, but God can help us through it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, that's incredibly inspirational. Any, would you have anything to add to that in your own life experience here in South Bend or, or elsewhere or things that you've seen in some of the people you're serving with St. Vincent de Paul? 
Well, being a part of St. Vincent de Paul is when we enter a home, we don't judge, we just serve. Mm -hmm. uh, so I will say that about that. But I think that where society is today, we're being forced to look at racism. Even in the schools, I was talking to a friend the other day and she said to me, I asked her about racism. She said one of the, some of the things I ran into was things that people didn't, teachers weren't even thinking about because uh, people of color are not their friend, they're not their neighbor, mm. but yet they're in charge of our, our children. And she said she noticed that every time a kid, a child would get sent down to the office, it would always be a person, of, a kid of color. And she said what bothered her was that they were sent down there because they didn't have a pencil, they didn't have a paper. Mm. And she had to she had to reach inside herself and say, I need to educate this teacher, but at the same time minister to this teacher. And so she called the teacher into the office and said, look, you're, you're calling this child outside of school, outside of the class, which means they're missing their instruction, so you're setting them up for failure. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'll give you pencil, I'll give you paper for this child. You know, so we need to get some training in place so that you can know, because it's racism that's blind, mm -hmm. yeah. you know, mm -hmm. so. That's a helpful example, yeah. You mentioned the Tolton Society and Augustus Tolton. Would you give us a sense of his life and his struggle and why he is so inspiring to so many? Uh, venerable Father Augustus Tolton, he's yes. venerable now. Yeah. He, he was born into slavery. His parents, and this is an interesting thing, his parents were Catholic hmm. because the slave owners were Catholic. Oh, wow. and, and they were, some of them did not baptize their slaves, but in Louisiana they, they baptized everyone. Uh, so they, they baptized him into the Catholic faith. And, and so um, Augustus Tolton's parents really, really saw the beauty of the Catholic faith, even though they didn't see it in those who enslaved them. And they, because they saw the gospel and they knew that liberation and it was part of, uh, freedom was part of human dignity, mm -hmm. they wanted something better for their children. And, and so they, they, they escaped slavery. Uh, the father went in the Civil War and he died before he could make it back. But the mother, Martha, she, she took Augustus and the, the two other kids and they escaped and set up a new life for themselves in Quincy, Illinois. Father Augustus Tolton was, uh, he lived a very difficult life as you know, a former slave, and mm -hmm. was always a, a point of danger. Sure. But he, but he was always this loving, humble young man. And uh, a priest uh, that Augustus caught his eye, he um, he said, you know, why don't you come in? I'll give you a job. And he he got him into a Catholic school, and then he um, he had him serve as an altar server. And he and he realized after a while that maybe you should be a priest. Mm. And he had this idea about what a, what Augustus should be even though everyone knew there were no African-American priests. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it just was the order of the day. Yeah. And, and so he had that seed planted, and so eventually he wound up going to Rome and becoming ordained because no American seminary would take him. Okay. And that is a, quite a statement that a seminary would not take someone being called to the vocation of priesthood. Right, right, yeah. But he came back and he ministered to the community he was in, and he attracted people who were African, of African uh, descent, who were black, as well as those who were white mm -hmm. because of his preaching, because of his singing, because of his, his compassion. And that created a lot of jealousy from the, you know, the fellow other priests in yeah. the area, white priests, yeah, yeah. because the people would come with their money and, yeah. and give it to Tolton's <laughs> parish. So they set up you know, rules that you, you, know, uh, you cannot 
You can only minister to the black folks. You cannot oh. minister to our oh. folk. Oh. That's who you're supposed to. And it made his life so miserable that he wanted up begging to leave the area. So he wound up being transferred to Chicago. Um, but he worked with a lot of the, 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 uh, the needy African-Americans, and they were quite poor back then. Mm-hmm. He walked maybe, um, he had to walk two hours a day to get from where he lived to where he was working. And, you know, and it was quite a toll on him physically. Mm-hmm. But he did all this with love and humility. And, and this is, you know, when I, when I look at his example, again, the things that he suffered, he did not have hate in his heart. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that is, I think, part of the reason why we're looking at him as a, as a candidate for sainthood. You can go through suffering, and it can make you bitter and angry and, and withdrawn. But holiness is you want to do the will of God in season and out of season. You want to love in season and out of season. That's what he did. And he was an example. He's an example for me because I am the only ordained African-American in our diocese okay. uh, as, as a deacon. And so there are times when I look to his example to say, okay, he was alone at times. And I'm not saying that I'm, I'm completely alone because sure. I have good friends sure. in, in, the, in the church, et cetera. But, but there are times when there are other people who don't get it. Yeah. And, and I don't know, am I, going, am I seeing this wrong? Am I crazy? But I remember Father Tolton, and, and that example stands out for me, mm-hmm. that um, sometimes we just have to bear that cross and, and just know that you know, God has got us uh, in the midst of all this. And so that's why he's, he's an example to me, and I think that's why he should be an example to other people, because all of us endure suffering in some way. Mm-hmm. But Father Tolton, he, he did it in such a gracious way. So we, we can do it with grace, but mm-hmm. we have to have that relationship with God, and we have to have a prayer life, and we, we, have to under, we have to see God in everybody, even those who are our, you know, I pray for those who persecute, as, right. as it says in the Scripture. Right. And holiness is uh, a big theme of the podcast, obviously, with its name. Annie, I'd be interested to hear from you. Have there been models of holiness either in, in the canon of saints or in your own life that you can think of who have been real examples of what it means to live a holy life and be a holy person? Um, the example I have of holiness is when I was growing up watching my parents work together, pray together, and raised us together. And my mom said to me, Annie, your, your dad and I do everything together. All decisions are made together uh, about you guys' life and how we're going to raise you guys. And I think that alone is what was put in place for me on how I wanted to uh, be in my, my marriage. Well, and it makes me think of what you already said, this kind of surprise grace of counseling other couples in marriage. So. I'd be interested to know what lessons you've learned in your own 22 years of marriage for both of you, and what are some of the pieces of advice that you give to couples who are either thinking about marriage or maybe having struggles in their marriage? I think one of the things that we've tried to focus on is, coming from a Catholic perspective, my, um, my nickname for my wife is my sacrament. Yeah. I said, you're my sacrament. And I, I say that to her all the time because I think of that as there, there's no sacrament of marriage without each of us as well as God in the mix. And there's always a, um, in the sacramental marriage, there's always a third person in the marriage. If people think of marriage as just you know, the two of us getting hitched, that's not a marriage. 
uh, a marriage is a covenant before God, mm-hmm. and it's a it's an agreement to to be with each other through sickness and health, through the good times and the bad times. That's that's what our vow is, and um, there are times when we struggle as a couple. You know, every every couple. If, you know, if you get in arguments, that's normal. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have disagreements, that's normal. If you have you can't agree on how to whether or not to buy certain appliances or not, <laughs> um, or you know, how to spend the money, that's normal. How to raise the kids, that's normal. We don't agree on everything. Yeah. But what we do, what we do do, is we do talk about everything. Uh, when we come to a disagreement and when we realize that things are getting a, a little bit dicey, we, we, we stop and we pray mm-hmm. and say, let's, let's, go to, let's turn to the third person in our marriage because we can't do it ourselves. We can't figure it out. And God has never failed us in that. So we, we'll, we'll sit down, we'll pray. And I think that that faith life and that recognition that there's a third person in a marriage is the thing that has helped us the most. And that's the, that's the thing that we try and let other folks know is, is you try and turn to God during your struggles in, 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 a, in a marriage. And, 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 and think about what the other person may be going through. Don't just think about yourself. And, and, and usually you can work through it. Not every uh, marriage is set up that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe people didn't get married for the right reasons, but, but hopefully if, if there is something there, you can work through it with God. Sometimes the discernment from God is that maybe this is not the best situation, mm-hmm. and maybe that's the thing that's most helpful for some people if mm-hmm. it's an abusive situation or whatever it sure. might be. But oftentimes I think people just forget to pray, mm-hmm. and they forget that there's another person in the marriage, especially if it's a sacramental marriage. Annie, how about for you? You know, they say that marriage is 50-50, but I think that if you're in a really a sacramental marriage, you realize that, you know, there's, there's a load, and the load is important because there's a weight on you in marriage, and you have to decide how, you wanna, how do you want to carry that load, you know. Uh, that load could be stressful, or that load could be beautiful. Mm-hmm. That load can make you sick if you don't manage it right, you know, mm-hmm. uh, because you'll feel like, uh, you don't have a say in a relationship. But what I think is that um, a marriage is being there for that person, knowing that person's pain, knowing that person's happiness. How can you help your partner along uh, to help them be the, to be the best that they can be, to, to make sure that you're doing something to help, them, to help them see God, you know, to not be a barrier for them, but to be a stepping stone for them to get closer to Christ. And in return, they should do the same for you. Mm-hmm. One, one, one other thing that we do as a couple is every, uh, every week we have date night. And, and so no, no matter what, we always have date night. Even if we have a, a function or an activity, it's like, okay, we're, we're still going to do date night. We might do it the next night or we might do it earlier in the day. But that is something that we, we've done for many years. And, and so we, we often counsel couples, like, don't stop dating just because you got mm-hmm. married. Yeah. Take time out for each other. And we have to do that because... If we don't, we, we get too busy, sure. and, and um, we, we always say, look, this is the night that we're going to go see a movie, or we're going to have a meal together, or we're going to you know, do something special. That, that is date night. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that sometimes we forget that we need to intentionally make time for each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we make time for our relationship with God and prayer, and this, this sacrament, as you put it so beautifully, that to make time for that, attending to that relationship as well. Mm-hmm. I would like to talk about your role here on campus, Deacon Mel, and what you have learned over the course of 
many years of counseling students in their own discernment. Could you could you give us a sense of what you do and and how you help students? Sure. So I've been working in various capacities at Notre Dame, often with students, uh, first in the undergraduate admissions office and then in the uh, first-year studies and now the Center for Undergraduate Advising, first-year advising. And I primarily advise arts and letters students right now. And I would say that I really get a joy out of working with young folks. Um, their excitement and their, their passion for discovering a passion for the things that they want to do in life I really enjoy that, and, and to see the things that they're doing just constantly inspires me. When people think that our world is, is not going anywhere and that young folks aren't, aren't going anywhere, you have to, if I could show you some of the things that uh, our students are doing, you would not believe that. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, I really enjoy working with them and helping them figure out what they want to do with their lives. I think that we just have to remember that their sense of faith, their sense of optimism, the struggles that they have already endured before coming here that have made the, given the character that they have, they're a lot stronger and a lot, they're a lot more resilient than, than we think. And so that's a reason for hope for me, and uh, I just love it. Well, good. Well, I know from interactions with folks on campus, and you and I are both instructors in the Moreau First Year yeah. Experience course, that that you're a real gift to the students on this campus. So thank you for all that you do. And, and thank you both. You mentioned grace overflowing and the sense of when when we really have a strong relationship with God, that the grace overflows and, and spreads to others. And I just, I see that in you, in your ministry as a, as a deacon couple, in your parish, in what you do here on campus and, and guiding your children. So thank you both for taking some time with us today and sharing your story with our audience. I'm sure it's going to help a lot of people out there. So thank you very much. Thank Thank you, you, Dan. Well, that concludes this episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. As a reminder, you can always sign up for our daily gospel reflection, where you'll receive notification of future episodes of the podcast. And you can do that at faith.nd.edu slash sign up. Until next time, we'll keep you in our prayers. Thank you.